last week we started a series and we entitled this series, A Biblical View of Diversity. How many of you enjoyed it? I spoke to some people after they were saying, yeah, no, this is a hot topic. No, we have to come back next week. You know, there's some people only come to church because of the topic. You know, I was speaking to someone, they said, ah, this one, this one I'm not going to miss, this one. <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, so what about other ones, you know? Um, and I spoke to you last week about diversity in the Bible, diversity in the Bible. And I said to you, how many of you know that as Christians, we should be at the forefront teaching people about diversity. There are a lot of people who are very anti-racism in this country and on this continent, but they themselves are the biggest racists. Amen? Right? But we as Bible-believing Christians need to be at the forefront when it comes to teaching on diversity. And so today I want to unpack this whole notion of understanding prejudice and stereotypes. Because these are terms that are used, isn't it? People talk about stereotype. Don't stereotype me. Or how come you've got prejudice? But a lot of people don't understand what it actually means. One of the things I'm going to learn is that there are things called love busters or love blockers, things that block us from loving. We should be the most loving people on earth, amen? Because we're Christians. But there are things that stop us from loving people genuinely. And two of those things I'm going to be covering today, prejudice and stereotypes, and they kind of overlap each other. So we're going to go into it. I've said to you that maturity, your relational maturity, will be seen in your ability when it comes to celebrating diversity. If you're really a relationally mature person, it will be seen, it will manifest in your ability to handle diversity. Amen. It's not enough to just love us four and no more if you're from a family of four people, right? It's not enough. Jesus said, you know what? Even the, even the guys in the world, let me just use basic English, even the heathens, even the Gentiles, even the pagans, they're the ones who love us four and no more, right? And many times we think we're very loving people, but you see that the measure Jesus puts in scripture of do you really love your neighbor? Do you love your enemy? Do you love the person who's not like you? Do you love the person who might be a different skin color or a different ethnic group? To what extent do you love those people? Can I hear an amen? amen? Now, the thing is, when you look at people out there, the behavior that pushes your button about that cultural group, that doesn't define that person. Sometimes we define people too much by their proclivities, by those elements that might annoy us, those unique features, but that's not who they are. You see, someone can call themselves, I'm a gay person, I'm a gay, and they use that as a way of identifying themselves, but that person isn't a gay person, biblically. That person is someone who practices homosexuality. Are you hearing me this morning? And we need to start defining things according to the word as opposed to that's someone's whole identity. It's not their identity. It's not their identity. You might not like someone's accent. You might not like someone's language group. But that's not the essence of who they are. They're much more than that. Okay? And we need to be people of humility. Where with true humility and love, we demonstrate to the world how we should relate to people from other groups. And the sad thing for me is a lot of Christians are no different to the world when it comes to this area. A lot of Christians today have got healing available for them, but they aren't yet healed in this particular area. And so we're going to address it by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Remember that Samuel had to choose a king. He had to go and anoint someone to be king. And God had to rebuke him. Because Samuel was viewing things with, this, with his own sight, wasn't he? And he goes to Jesse's sons and he's thinking, okay, which one? And both Samuel and Jesse are judging people by the flesh. And God had to speak to Samuel and say, the Lord does not look at things people look at. Question, what do you look at? Because God doesn't look at the things that people look at. What do you look at? What do you set your eyes upon when you're judging someone? Do you have a mindset that says, you know what, ah, this is the head boy type. You know, I hear Christians saying things like, ah, if this person got saved, mm, then he would lead so many people to the Lord. And sometimes we look at external factors. Some of the greatest evangelists were the people who were written off at school. Some of the greatest evangelists, they were people who were written off at school. They weren't the obvious case. If you look in scripture, God says, you know what? He loves to view those things that are considered foolish, foolish by mankind. He loves to use those so that God gets the glory. Amen? Amen. And the Bible here says the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I believe it's time here in South Africa we start looking at the heart and not looking at externals. We start assessing and judging people by the heart and not by the externals. And for too long, the church has been consumed with impression management. The show must go on. As long as I look good, then it's fine. As long as my family looks good, then it's fine. No, it's not fine. God looks at the heart. Now, here are some examples of some of the stereotypes that are out there. French people are the best lovers. Now, there's a bit of a problem there because if you're a girl, if you're a single lady and you go to Paris and you've got that mindset that French people are the best lovers, what's going to happen? Now you've got a choice between a French person and a German person. And maybe God is giving you a German person to get hooked up to. There are consequences to the stereotypes we have because if your mindset is French people are the best lovers, you'll choose the French person over the German person. Are you hearing me this morning? There are consequences to the lies that we've believed about people. Let me give you another example. Women can't drive. So now you get a lift from a woman and your anxiety level goes up. That's a bit of a problem. There are consequences to stereotypes. Okay? My wife is a better driver than me. I think she's a better driver than me. All right? Um, praise God. And I don't mind. I'm secure enough in my manhood. I think she's a better driver than me. <laughs> All right? Another example. All Irish people eat potatoes. My wife is of Irish descent. Oh yeah, she said she likes potatoes the other day, actually. <laughs> she doesn't eat a lot of chips. All right? All Irish people eat potatoes. Hmm? You also have positive stereotypes, like all Asian people are gifted in academics. I mean, it's there as a stereotype. I want to show you how powerful stereotyping is because it actually affects us and it leads to the spirit of racism. You see, there are doorway 
mindsets to a spirit. They're doorway strongholds to opening yourself up to a demonic spirit. You don't just get, oh yeah, I'm demonized by the spirit of racism. It doesn't start like that. It starts off with a fleshly mindset, a stronghold. A stronghold is basically an unchallenged thought. It's a thought process that you have that never goes unchallenged. And one of the things that ends up leading us to the spirit of racism is where we carry and we hold stereotypes about people that are not based on the truth. They're what we call overgeneralizations. There's nothing wrong with generalization. There's a problem with an overgeneralization. Amen. We're going to go, go a bit deeper into this. Sometimes we have another type of stereotype that's also a positive one. All women are nurturers. I was speaking to a particular lady some time back, and um, she was saying, you know what, Paul, I feel a bit bad. And throughout my life, I felt a bit bad because my sister is a natural nurturer. But I'm not really like my sister. And so I, start, I sort of end up feeling that my son is missing out on something. I said to her, you know what? God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. God knows that you would have this son. She's got one boy. God knows that you'll have this son. He's given you everything that that son needs in a mother. You have it. You don't have to be like your sister. And you see, what tends to happen is we stereotype certain roles. And I'm going to go into archetypes just now, but we stereotype certain roles and we say, if you're a mother, this is how you must be like. There's certain duties of a mother, and we've, we've spoken on this, and it's also in that book. When I talk about mother wounds, it's in that freedom book, okay? There's certain things mothers should do, amen, according to scripture. But sometimes we get so caught up in this must be your style, this must be your approach, this must be how you speak to your children, this is what it must look like. And then you feel you see a lot of moms just living a life of guilt because they're not like their sister, or they're not like their mother was, or they're not like their cousin was. Can you see how the stereotypical roles we have end up damaging us and filling us with guilt? And that's wrong. If you think to yourself, all Asian people are good at maths, then now you're in a hiring situation. And there's a person who looks oriental, and then there's someone else who comes who's maybe from, I don't know, who's Tonga. Let me just say that, all right? And then you choose the other person over this person because of the stereotyping. Are you following me this morning? We're going to go deep into this. Another thing I want to state is that sometimes stereotypes come from somewhere. So sometimes people get very much into a reaction mode. You know, where they say, how come you're saying that you're generalizing? Instead of pressing pause and saying, why are people saying this about my ethnic group? Is there an element of truth here? Are you hearing me? Right? Is there an element of truth here to what they're saying? You see this in scripture in Titus chapter 1 verse 12 to 13. The apostle Paul quoted a pagan poet who stereotypically described the people of Crete. And this is what Paul says. He says, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And he goes on to say, this saying is true. Now, there are different ways you can interpret this. But the fact of the matter is, if that was true of a lot of Cretans, the fact of the matter is, after they got saved, it was no longer true. Because after you get born again and you get discipled, you should stop becoming lazy. You should stop being a glutton. Are you hearing me? 
So we might have weaknesses within our culture, but God redeems us and then we're no longer that. And when you observe that culture, you might say, okay, there's this pattern of weakness in that people group. But you know what? Not all of them are like that because of the power of God. In the same way we spoke last week about the redemptive gifts of certain people groups, there are also negative aspects, aren't there? There are also lines of weaknesses in certain people groups. And it's important that we also accept that. I still remember studying um, industrial psych, and it was in the 90s. And I remember um, looking at a particular uh, passage. Not a passage, you see, I'm used to the Bible. An article in a magazine. And it was talking about discrimination of black managers in the 90s in South Africa. And the, it said a powerful point that I'll never forget. It mentioned a powerful point. It, it said... The thing about black managers in South Africa is that the main thing for them to deal with isn't so much discrimination, but the bigger issue is managing their own rage in reaction to the discrimination. Everyone get that? Okay? And what I'm realizing more and more is that discrimination will always be there for black people, white people, Indian people, right across the board, right? It will always be there. But how I manage my reaction to it is my choice. Someone was speaking to me the other day, a friend of mine from school, and he's now based in, in Tanzania, Zimbabwean guy, and he, but he used to work here, and he, he started working here in the 90s also, and he was talking about the racism that was there and that kind of thing. But he says, you know what, Paul, you, you can't actually discriminate against me. A black guy, right, Shona guy. He says, no one can discriminate against me. You can actually call me, and they used a particular word that I won't repeat here. And he says, someone can call me that. It won't actually affect me. What you call me doesn't define me. You see, and what happens is sometimes people react so much, put so much in multimedia. This person called me this, this person called me. The moment you keep reacting to it, you're just giving it power over you. Have you noticed how bullies work in a school? They thrive on your reaction. They want to see a response or a reaction from you that is negative. Then they're like, ah, it worked. I've got power over you. And then they keep doing it. It doesn't justify their behavior. It doesn't justify their behavior. But I'm not going to let someone else's weakness control my mood. Amen. Some of you give too much power to people over you just through their words. And the very fact that you react so much to their words just shows me that, wait a minute. Who's got power and who's the powerless one? Think about it, okay? You know, um, it was in the late 90s, I was involved in a stereotype reduction workshop. It was a workshop with the aim of reducing stereotypes. And we traveled to Fort Hare University. Some of you are familiar with Fort Hare University. We traveled there for this workshop. And they would, do a, they would go through a process where they would say specific stereotypes that people have about specific groups. And the group, the people representing the group, had to respond to the stereotype. Everyone following, right? So they said to a particular group of people, I won't mention the group, but you can guess. They said, you guys, it was a, a particular ethnic group, and it was the males. You men... You are wife beaters. That's what people say about you. Is that true? Is that false? And the men said, you know what? It's true. We've done this to our wives and we apologize. It's a terrible thing. We apologize. Okay. 
You men, they say that you are lazy. Is that true or is that false? That's the stereotype. And these guys said, you know what? We're not lazy. We're just demotivated, you know, because of A, B, C, D, <laughs> right? And then they said, you guys, people say of you, you are thieves. You steal. Is that true or is that false? They say, no, 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 no. For us, uh, we believe we're just taking back that which is ours. And, and they called it affirmative shopping, okay, at that time. But can you see what is happening? Stereotypes have formed about certain groups of people. You can react to the stereotype or you can say, you know what, this is not true of all of us. Some have, been, have given us this bad name, especially the affirmative shopping people, right? But it's not true of all of us. The consequence of holding these stereotypes about a particular group is that when a representative of that group is called by God into your life, you end up rejecting that individual. Are you hearing me? Right? You end up saying like, ah, these people, they're like this, and this is what they'll do to you. And then the result is that you make what we call inner vows. An inner vow, an example of an inner vow is, I will never do business with those people again because they'll crook me. And then you're praying and you're saying, God, give me a breakthrough. Give me a breakthrough. God will send that very person to you. Will you accept the person or will you not? That's just how God often operates. Some of you are losing out on opportunities because you've made inner vows concerning certain people groups. You've decided that my blessing will only come from this person who looks like this, who's this gender, who talks like this. And God is choosing to use someone else. Amen. So let me give you a few definitions here. What is prejudice? Prejudice comes from two Latin words, pre and judicium. And the word pre means in advance. And judicium means to judge. So it's basically to judge in advance, to make a premature judgment. And we do this all the time, don't we? We do it all the time. And sometimes to survive in life, we have prejudgments. So if a heavy box has to be lifted up and I'm surrounded by a few ladies, I might assume, okay, maybe I'm better suited. I'm probably stronger than them. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, but if Cindy is one of those ladies and she tells me how much she bench presses because she goes to the gym a lot and so on, right? And then I still insist that because I'm a guy, I'm stronger than her, even though she bench presses more than me, my prejudgment has become prejudice. Are you following me this morning? Let me give you another example. I've got a cousin who's a doctor. She's very well-spoken, right? And she told me of a situation where there was a particular lady, I think it was an older white lady, right? Uh, who came to her and basically assumed that she had gone to a private school because of how she was, right? But she hadn't been to a private school. She went to a government school in Port Elizabeth, right? Secondly, this lady assumed that my cousin had been adopted. <laughs> can you, but can you see the mindset? The mindset in that person was black person speaking like this, being so intelligent. Instead of changing her mindset that, who? okay, there's some clever black people. 
And mindset was now, you must have been adopted. <laughs> now here's the interesting thing though, some people react to that thinking it's only white people who think that. I told this story to a group of people and one person said, I actually did that. That's an experience I had. And they spoke about how someone, a black female, was asked, she asked that person, she says, where are you from? And this black female says, I'm from Santon. Now in this other person's mindset, black people aren't from Santon. <laughs> but how many of you know that this is now 24 years after independence? There are a lot of black people who were born in Santon, raised in Santon, and Santon is all they know. And so she also thought, were you adopted? Are you, are you, are you hearing me this morning? And it's time that our world opens up, that we realize that, wait a minute, every single person has a story. Every single person has a story. People look at me, and I don't know if it's because I'm married to a white-skinned person, or it's the school I went to, or what, but sometimes they've got this mindset of, I, I can see it, like they don't think Paul is, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> But I asked people, and I asked them about rural areas, because I was born, my grandmother was a, a nurse. She actually features in a book called Women of Rhodesia, in one of the chapters. And she had a clinic at our rural home in the Eastern Highlands. Both my older brother and myself, we were born there. We were born in my grandmother's clinic. I was born on a Sunday morning there, which was before the days of scanning machines and so on. So my mother discovered on that Sunday morning when everyone else was at church, okay, I've got another boy. She would have liked a girl. But another boy now, you know, because it was obvious, right? Um, and, <laughs> right, I've got another boy. And that's when she dedicated me to the Lord. I don't know if she fully knew what she was doing. She was like, Lord, you know what? You've given me another boy. He was born on a Sunday morning while everyone else is at church. So God, I give him to you. May he be used by you. And I started preaching when I was 12. Okay. But the point I'm making is I was born at my rural home. Every holiday growing up, my folks would just drop us off there and we'll be there. Myself, my older brother David playing, messing around and so on. So we know when you talk about agriculture, when you talk about tilling the ground, doing all that kind of thing, we know it back to front. Even in the suburbs that we then grew up in, we would always grow things in our backyard. We had big yards those days. Pumpkins, all of it, you name it, I can grow it. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay, so everyone has a story. So don't make assumptions about people when you don't know what their story is. If you look at, some of you have heard that wonderful TED talk by Chimamanda, the one on uh, the danger of a single story. Here's this Nigerian woman who now is based in the States, and she was asked a question. She was asked, so do you like tribal music? Which tribal music do you like? And there was the assumption there that she was into tribal music. And she was like, just because I'm from Nigeria, I'm Nigerian middle class, I now live in the States, but don't make the assumption that I like tribal music. And sometimes what happens is when we hear stories of different nations, we've only got one story about the country. Have you noticed that? They're multiple stories. I can go on and on talking about that. All right? Prejudgment. When you look at that word judicium and you go in depth into it, it actually speaks of the violation of a legal right. And later on, when you study the etymology, the origin of that word, it actually speaks of causing harm or damage to someone. 
So it's like sending someone to prison, damaging someone, and we do it mentally a lot of times. We judge people in our minds before we've given them a fair trial. How many people are you judging? How many people are you writing off before you know the facts about them? Just because you're too lazy, and we're often too lazy, to actually make different assumptions. You know, one of the things uh, I've learned is one of the most powerful phrases or questions is, what else could be true? Oh, there's this Nigerian guy who's come, he's now joined our running club. Ooh, what else could be true? No, this is the truth, this, this happened. There's a time my wife was running with a group of people and so on, and she came to me and she said, Hey, my love, you know what? There's a bit of, I, I can see there's a bit of prejudice because one, a Nigerian guy joined us and one of the guys made a comment and said, um, Oh, the drug dealers have come. <laughs> okay? And he might have been thinking he was cracking a joke, but it's a form of prejudice, a stereotype, isn't it? When we talk about, when we talk about Nigerians, let me just say this. Let me just say this. You don't have one characteristic describing a whole group of people. So people will say, oh, Nigerians are outspoken, they're big guys, and they'll just speak their mind and they do a lot of entrepreneurship. The honest truth is if, you get, if you've got Nigerian friends, you'll know that it's mainly the Igbos who are the ones who travel the world a lot and are very entrepreneurial and very outspoken. But as you get to know different tribal groups in Nigeria, you actually meet different personalities. Are you hearing me this morning? Right? It's like the people who think, oh, all Chinese people look the same. <laughs> they look the same from your perspective because you're not Chinese. No, it's true. All black people look the same. Oh, you look just like Takunda. <laughs> no, I look very different to Takunda. Right? But, but black people do that to white people. Have you noticed that? Because a white person will come to you and will say, yeah, is it the lady with the green eyes or the blue eyes? And the black person's just like, hey, come on. <laughs> it was just a pale looking person. I don't know the exact eye color now. No, green and blue. Hey, those two people look the same. No, they look different. The other one has got brown eyes. The other one has got blue eyes. Hey, I didn't see. For me, it was just this blur. It was just a white person with long hair, okay? You see, what tends to happen is we distance ourselves from things we don't understand. You avoid that which you fear. You will avoid that which you fear. If you're fearful of something, you'll avoid it. And you know what that ends up doing? It magnifies difference. What the spirit of racism does is it will exaggerate the difference. It will magnify difference. Okay? It will make you think that these people are so, so different to me when in actual fact, there's a lot of common ground. Are you hearing me this morning? I will avoid you because I don't understand you. And then I distance myself. And then I'm now afraid of you because I don't understand you. And I distance myself. Then I will judge you because of lack of knowledge. And I'll distance myself. And you end up hating that which you fear. It's very difficult to be afraid of something and still love it. Love casts out fear. Love is the antithesis of fear. Love and fear don't work together. Amen? Praise God. 
Can I go a bit deeper? You know those churches, go deeper, pastor. Go deeper, papa. So let's unpack, let's unpack stereotypes. Let's unpack stereotypes. A stereotype is a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular person or group. A stereotype is what? It's a, wild, or it's a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular person or group. So when I, when, I got, when I got married, or before I got married, on my wife's side of the family, there was fear. There were all sorts of comments. Hey, black people, black people will give you AIDS. No, that's, that, there's a fear there. Hey, but then if you marry Paul, and then if Paul dies, you'll have to maybe marry one of his brothers. <laughs> Are you hearing me? No, they love me to bits now. They think the sun shines out of my <laughs> whatnot. They love me to bits and, and I love them to bits. But those are the type of things. And when the spirit of fear grips people, the stereotype is reinforced. It's an oversimplified view. On my side of the family, there was fear that, eh, but you know what, we've seen it before. When, some, when a black person marries a white person, They'll take the black person away from his family and we won't hear of you again. There was that fear. I remember with my grandmother, she was like, hey, then you'll have so-called colored, no offense to the colored people in the house, so you'll have colored grandkids. And I remember my grandmother would say to me, she said, Paul, I had a dream. I don't know if she was conning or not. And I, and I saw you like playing around with this white girl. That's fine, that's fine, you can just be friends, it's okay. But marriage! <laughs> and then at a certain point she said, uh, you see the problem is, colored people don't have, the word that is used in Shona is naka, okay? Uh, naka speaks of inheritance or a land of your own type of thing. Now we know that's not true. South Africa belongs to so-called colored people just as much as it belongs to so-called black people, so-called white people. Are you hearing me? Next week I'm going to talk about overcoming the spirit of racism because the narrative right now is completely wrong. When people say, oh, this is our nation more than it is those people's nation. I'm going to unpack some scary things for you, but this is our nation. Amen. Amen. What is so powerful, I remember with, with my mother-in-law, she said the very thing, talking about grandkids, the very thing I thought I would not like in terms of mixed grandkids is now the very thing I love the most. That's why for those of you who end up getting into cross-cultural marriages and that kind of thing, I was advised before I got married that 90% of the time, a lot of stuff is resolved when the kids come forth. Because people are looking and they're seeing that this person checks like me, all right? This is, this is my blood here and so on. Things begin to change. So don't make judgments before and hey, they'll never cope with this, they'll never cope with this. The world is going tan. And people need to get used to it. People need to get used to it. I, 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 want to, I want to also unpack something else. There's a difference between an archetype and a stereotype. Have you heard the concept of archetype? Right. 
When we talk about something being archetypal, it's very interesting. It's basically the typical description, the description of a typical so-and-so. So if you say the archetypal headmaster, everyone knows in every country what you're talking about. Amen? When you talk about an archetype in terms of woman, people usually use the archetype nurturer. But how many of you know that women are not just nurturers? When you unpack archetypes, there are a number of interesting things. Let me, let me talk about women, for example. There's the woman as lover. How many of the women in this place right now, how many of you are lovers? You're also a lover. Thank you, Elaine, for raising your hand. Brian is rejoicing. <laughs> how many of you are lovers? It's, it's, as a woman, you're also a lover. Come on, are you guys shy or something? S Cindy Cock, are you a lover? Right, okay. So there's woman as lover. There's the woman as maiden. That's also an archetype of a woman. The maiden, you know, the innocent maiden, the giggly maiden, and so on. That playful maiden. Then there's woman as mother. Then there's woman as queen. Then there's woman as huntress. Huntress is a female who hunts. Right? And sometimes that happens in your professional life. Sometimes that happens in your business life. There are well-known huntresses out there. Okay? Then there's the woman as sage. You know that wise woman who, who's just wise and advises everyone. And then there's the woman as the mystic. These are different archetypes of women. Now here's the thing. You look at someone like Deborah in the Bible. I mean, you see her as a huntress. You see her as a warrior, don't you? And it's good for women to be able to step into that archetype and say, I'm going to run with this particular thing. But you know what the danger of archetypes is? When you get stuck in one of them. I mean, if you know that Deborah, with her kids, would have to put on the nurturer cap and know how to nurture her kids. Now, you know what a problem is we have today? You have someone fully embracing archetype mother. Oh, no, I just mother everyone. And now they're trying to mother their husband. And now they're trying to mother every single person at work. Are you hearing me this morning? That's when an archetype becomes almost like a stereotypical role that you embrace, but then you become too fixed in it. Do you know that even as pastors, there's the archetypal pastor. If you look historically in every culture, when we talk about archetypes, they're there in every culture, every nation. If you look at the archetype, you'll find in some cultures there was the shaman. Are you following? Here there was always the, you know, the Yosangoma or that wise man, right? Right? And you know what the danger is? In our psyche and our worldview, we're still caught up with set archetypes. So now someone becomes your pastor, but because you have fixed them in terms of the archetype man of God, you relate to them in the same way you used to relate to a sangoma when you're not saved. Are you following? And that's what we're seeing creeping into the body of Christ now. So if a pastor wants to play soccer with you, 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 you can't adjust to that because you fixed them in that stereotypical pastor role. There are people today who don't want their husbands to become pastors because they don't want to be a pastor's wife. And then I say to them, but what's wrong with being a pastor's wife? They've got the archetypal role of a pastor's wife must do A, B, C, D. I'm glad that my wife on a Saturday, she can be there cycling for four hours, right? Cycling long distances, running long distances and so on. She cleans up well and on Sunday morning she's here preaching or teaching. Are you following me?
We, we must be very careful of having stereotypical roles for certain things. Otherwise, it will exclude a whole lot of people who are different. Amen? Amen. There are some pastors who always wear suits. There are others who dress in jeans. There are others who are very pastoral. There are others that are more prophetic. And that's okay. God made us different. So what did Jesus do with stereotypes? What did Jesus do with stereotypes? He broke stereotypes and the mold of the day. He saw people differently. He saw people differently. Think of his narrative about the Samaritans. It was different, wasn't it? I mean, Jesus parks off. You don't have to turn there. But in Luke 10, verse 25 to 37, he tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, which many of us will be familiar with. But it starts off with a conversation with one of the teachers of the law who says, you know what, uh, Jesus, you know, what's the most important law? How should we operate? Then he answers the question. He talks about love your neighbor and so on. And the guy says, yeah, no, but I've already been doing it. But, but Jesus, you know what, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells us the parable of the good Samaritan. And the good Samaritan was the hero in that narrative, wasn't he? Remember, there was the priest who goes down and he sees this guy who's been beaten up by robbers and he goes across to the other side of the road, ignores the person. There was the Levite who sees the individual, goes across to the other side of the road. Then he says, then a Samaritan came down and the Samaritan put wine and bandaged the person, wine and oil and bandaged the person up. And then this guy goes to, the, to an inn and he basically says, you know what, guys, I'm going to leave you here with two denarii. Right? That's like a two days wage. Two days wages. That's a lot of money. He says, I'm going to leave you with this. I'm going to go off on my trip. When I get back, if there's still any more expenses, I'll cover them. Who is your neighbor? Who's the one who acted with love and compassion? He says, it was the one who showed the person mercy. It was the Samaritan. Do you know what Jesus was doing? He was challenging their mindset about Samaritan people. Remember, there was extreme racism between these two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans. Let me take you down um, history. Right? Do you remember when the children of Israel were taken into captivity, exile, by the Assyrian Empire? Right? They went off. There were some that remained. Remember that? Okay? And those Jews that remained in Samaria, a number of them ended up mixing with people who were worshipping foreign gods and intermarrying with those people. So they're almost seen as half-breeds because of that. And you remember when Nehemiah then came down to Jerusalem and wanted to rebuild the temple. Remember there was Sanballat. Okay, he was the leader of the Samaritans. Okay, and they were like, uh-uh, you guys shouldn't be building the temple in Jerusalem. You guys should actually be building it in, um, on Mount uh, Gerizim. Right? So they had different ideas about how God should be worshipped. They even acknowledged different books of the Bible. They were like, you know what? We'll go with Moses' stuff, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. We'll go with that. But we're not going to go with the books of the prophets. Okay? So there were differences in terms of that. So there was racism there between these two groups. Extreme racism. And the idea was that we would never have anything to do with you people. And yet Jesus showcases the Samaritan as the hero in the story. I believe that he's called us to do that. 
When you know that there are stereotypes about a certain group of people and people are reinforcing those stereotypes, it's up to us as Bible-believing Christians to say, but I know Tracy, she's not like that. I know Manly, he's not like that. I know Juan, he's not like that. Not all colored people are like that. Are you hearing me? That's what we're called to do as believers, to challenge the stereotypes that are out there. When people have stereotypes about marriage and they dismarriage and they talk about marriage not being able to work, we need to rise up and say, you know what? You can actually experience marital bliss. It's possible. Are you hearing me? When people talk about government in a certain way, the same government that the Bible instructs us, not pray for all people in authority, pray for government. We must come with the opposite spirit. So Jesus did that with the Samaritans. And what is interesting is, do you remember in John chapter 4, he goes and he speaks to a Samaritan woman. And the disciples were surprised. They're like, how can you speaking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan? Samaritan woman. And Jesus is having this conversation with this lady. He's breaking stereotypes. And yet many of us are like, oh, I don't want to be seen with those people. Oh, I don't want to be seen in that crowd. What will my people think of me? Are you hearing me this morning? And what's so powerful if you study scripture and you just go throughout scripture, you will see, for example, in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, Peter and John, it says that they preached in many Samaritan villages. They broke that stereotype. If you look at Jesus, his narrative about kings was also different. The mindset around kingship in those days was a king rules, a king commands everyone. And Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew 20, verse 24 to 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He broke the stereotypical view of this is what a king is and this is what a king does. Some of you are from cultures where you've been told, don't walk with your kids. Some of you are from cultures where you've been told children must be seen, not heard. And you try and show off when your parents are around. I mean, when your parents are around or your friends are around that I'm, the, I'm in charge of this house. Instead of breaking the stereotype. And when we disciple people, it's important that they see what we're like in our homes. They see the conversations we have with our children. And the interactions we have, instead of the distance, we must break stereotypes. Amen. Amen. Okay? So what's the narrative in your community around government? What's the narrative around local government? A lot of people say negative things. Ah, city of Tuane this, city of Joburg that. I've done some work for some of these organizations. I've coached people from some of these organizations and you sit with them and you see people who've come from the private sector frustrated when they're working in local government because they're saying, you know what, Paul, we want to do this, we want to do that. Paul, pray for me this, pray for us that. Strong Christians like you and me. And yet often we are cursing them. Local government this, local government this. There are a lot of people in government today who want to bring about changes. But they're stuck politically. How many of you work for government, work in government? They're stuck politically because you'll have someone saying, you know what, I can lose my engineering license if I go ahead with this bridge. But the politicians are coming to me and saying, chief, we need votes. You must build that bridge. <laughs> and that's what these people experience. And they're the ones that need prayer. Amen? Amen. 
So we mustn't have this typecast view of all government employees are lazy, are unqualified, don't like working. That's how people view people. And then we cancel out our prayers because now in prayer meetings, we're praying strong prayers for government. But when we're talking to our friends afterwards, we're cursing the government. And that's wrong. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, it says, First of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be offered on behalf of all men for kings and all those in authority, so that we may lead tranquil lives, tra tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. This is good and pleasing in the sight of our Savior. Right now, when we're talking about the land question, and I'm, I'm going to preach a whole message just on land, because I think it needs people to speak about it from a biblical perspective. Amen? Because everyone is talking about it today, thinking they're experts on it, but they don't know God's perspective on it. What's your view right now of white farmers in this country? You see, there's the danger of a single story. Because often our mindset is, these are the guys who've taken all our land. Not all of them have taken all the land. Some of them bought it, right? Some of them came through. You know, I've got a, I've got a brother-in-law who's a Dutoy, and he was telling me that in the 1700s, the first French guy who landed in this country was a guy called Francois Dutoy, right? Now, think about it. There were some people who moved onto land and fought for it and unjustly gained the land. How many of you know that this is a very big country? How many of you know that there's a lot of room for all of us? Are you hearing me this morning? There were some people who just found space and came. Just like the Bantu people came from Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Kenya, and also settled just, you know, talking to the Khoisan, saying, hey, we'll teach you how to farm. You guys can teach us how to hunt better. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay. There's the danger of a single story. I've got friends in Zimbabwe, farmers in Zimbabwe, who had big farms, and they started a process in Bindura. They started a process where they said, you know what, we're going to start doing farming God's way, and we're going to train up people to actually farm in this way. And they started training up their workers and giving away land. Are you hearing me? And there's some people who are doing that in this country right now. I'm going to go deep into this when I preach on it, a whole message just on this, on the issue of land redistribution. You see, man is depraved. Man is fallen. And for some of you are very trusting and you're like, I trust this person to fairly and equally redistribute the land. This person who's unsaved, who's cheating on his wife, doing wicked things. And you think that person has got the moral maturity to be able to say, okay, you take this one. And you take this, and you take this. You trust man to do that. South Africa must learn from Zimbabwe's mistakes. Because now Zimbabwe, the president is now saying, farmers, come back, we need you, we need you. Because farming is not easy. We should actually be talking more about training up people to farm. You know that there are certain countries right up Africa that are agrarian, where your grandmother, your great-grandmother, your fathers all used to farm, and you learned from that. Uh, farming is difficult. I've got a brother who farms. Farming, you have to know climatology. You have to understand the climate, how it works. You have to be an accountant. You have to be strong on animal husbandry. That's not something that you just learn overnight. Are you hearing me? All right? 
So let's talk about training and equipping people instead of just trying to rush certain things. So what are your stereotypes about white farmers? What are your stereotypes about farmers in general? Like just a farmer. Do you know how Canada blesses its farmers? Do you know that if you're in Canada, one of the best places to retire is to be a farmer in Canada. In Canada, the guys will still pay you even if you have bad harvest. The government will still pay you even if you have a bad harvest this year. Because they recognize that farmers feed us. So let's look after them. Some of you are going to get land in this country. But I'm praying that your mindset when you get the land isn't a mindset of status. Ah, now I have my land. Hey, I've got my land. How many hectares is yours? Only. Ah, I have my land. What people have to understand is that in the Africanist worldview, the mindset behind land, land is sacred. Land is to do with ownership. Land is to do with dignity. Okay. Land, always, land isn't always to do with producing as much as I can to feed a nation. That isn't always the mindset. Guys came to Africa from Germany, from France, from the UK with an entrepreneurial mindset that says, I'm going to get this 5,000 hectares, 10,000 hectares, 20,000 hectares, and I'm going to maximize its production. When you get your land, are you going to have a producing mindset or are you going to have an entitlement man's mindset? Because I'm telling you right now, if we have an entitlement mindset when it comes to um, land, there'll be many people on land, high status, but unproductive. And the nation will starve. And that's what we've seen in Zimbabwe. And we need to learn our lessons. Amen. Okay. You know, Jesus was so happy that Father God broke the stereotype by giving simple people revelation. Look at Luke, look in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. It says here, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus was just so happy that Father God broke the stereotype. Can you see that? And he gave revelation and he gave wisdom to the simple ones and not the people who everyone expected to be clued up about things. Let me share with you a couple of stories around stereotypes. I, had, I went to university in 1994. And we all know what happened in Rwanda in 94. So I was in the Eastern Cape at the time at Rhodes University. And I had a friend called Romuald. And Romuald was from Rwanda. And Romuald actually lost most of his family because of the genocide in Rwanda. And I still remember going with a friend of mine, Jablani, to see Romuald. And we went to his room. And we were trying to comfort him. Yet he's the one who was comforting us. He's the one who was saying, and you guys, how are you doing? He was such a gentleman, Romuald. Vim knows uh, my wife knows, right? Such a gentleman. And what is powerful about Rom Romuald is uh, his, his, he was such a gentleman. He now lives in Sweden. But what is interesting for me about this guy is that he got married to Sarah, friend of ours. Tall, striking blonde hair, white South African. So just picture the situation. Here is quite a dark guy, also tall. Two of them got married in about 99 
One day they were walking together in East London. I think they were going to the shops or somewhere. Husband and wife who love each other recently married. A guy slows down his car and he says to Sarah, is everything okay, ma'am? Can you see what's happening? That's what we call prior learning. And that's what prejudice is. You've got a form, you formed an idea of something through your limited world. And now when you see a black man walking with a white woman, you feel the white woman is in trouble. Let me rescue her. That's prejudice, isn't it? Okay. Many of you have experienced stories like this and you can tell me story after story after story. I know there's a particular guy from the DR Congo. He was sharing with me that he, him and his wife wanted to buy a house in Santon. So they pitch up in Santon to purchase a house. And the security guard starts laughing at him saying, this is Santon, this is Santon. <laughs> Can you see what's happening? People, people who look like you have prejudice toward you because of their limited world. And the guy ended up buying the house and they gave a lift to that security guard afterwards. And so I think they got to know each other a little bit. <laughs> now what you have to be careful about prejudice is internalizing these, the prejudice and the stereotypes. Because you end up thinking to yourself, oh, so black people don't buy houses in those areas. You internalize it yourself. Black people don't do that type of sport. I remember in one of my workshops, there was a, a vendor guy, a guy uh, who's vendor here? Praise God. There was a vendor guy. And this guy, we asked, so what are your interests? We're asking each other. And he said, skiing. And I must admit, I'm be honest with you, I also was thinking, okay. <laughs> and he had a strong vendor accent, he said skiing. So my first thing was, I just assumed, it's, okay, maybe in one of the dams there, maybe he's into water skiing or something. <laughs> the guy educated us about snow skiing in the slopes of Colorado mountains and so on, and Lesotho and this and this, he broke the stereotype. Because a lot of black people will say like, no, black people were just into like, you know, flat surfaces. We're not into the hiking thing and so on. <laughs> Who said that? That's why it was so nice to see that Jamaican, um, that Jamaican uh, lady. Atkinson, I think her surname is, right? And you, you, you see her like, you know, doing so well. I think she got the silver. What I actually saw is in 2014, I think it was, or 2012, she actually won. She was the first black female to win in those top events in terms of swimming. You see her there going for a breaststroke. And sometimes we've got this mindset like, I know if black people and cold water swimming. Uh, no, 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 we're not. <laughs> and there your child potentially is a brilliant swimmer. I was at one of these triathlon uh, competitions. You know when you look around and you can count like how many people of color and so on, right? And there's this guy, uh, Kotso, who's a, now a triathlete. And he was there and so on. And he tells us his story and he says, you know what, when we were growing up, my mom, you know, you're living there in a village and so on. He says, I grew up in the village and we were always warned, don't go to the dam because that's the only place you could swim, but it was dangerous. So we warned, don't go to the dam, don't go to the dam. And that's why it's not a genetic thing that black people aren't good swimmers or anything. It's just to do with circumstances. And so he then went to the Learn to Swim program and now he's swimming like in a dam and so on. He's got an award recently, Most Improved Triathlete. Are you hearing me this morning? How have you limited yourself based on what your group, your ethnic group does? 
And what was so powerful was there was a white lady also with us in that conversation, and I think she's in her 50s or so, and she had a similar story to Kotso. And she said, you know what? I had to also be on the Learn to Swim program. And that's because my, my mother was superstitious. We grew up on a farm, and she would say, at certain times of the year, you cannot go down to the river. So I was now afraid of, of rivers. But there's someone who doesn't look like Kotso, looks different and so on, but also had to go into the Learn to Swim program. So a lot of things in our lives are to do with circumstances, not to do with the color of your skin. Are you hearing me this morning? I had an experience in one of my seminars where people had to go into the middle of the circle. We were doing this game. They had to go into the middle of the circle if a stereotype, if, if, if the thing I called out applied to them. So I said, how many of you are Kaiser Chief supporters? And a number of people, and usually with Kaiser Chief supporters, they're very loud and they go in dancing and so on into the middle of the circle and so on. And one of the people was a Santonite, blonde-haired, funky dressed, funkily dressed, white female. And she was there. <laughs> so then I tested the guys. And after we did the exercise, I said, were there any surprises? And one of the guys was like, yes. I said, what, what were you surprised by? Her. <laughs> Why? How did she surprise you? Ah, that she's a Kaiser chief supporter and so on. Then she shares with us and she says, I go. And I sit on those, what you call them? The strong chairs. The strong seats. I sit on them. Out there with everyone. Then we realized that she's actually, she was actually a semi-professional soccer player. She used to work for FIFA in Switzerland. FIFA, the International Federation for Soccer. All right, for those who don't know. So don't write people off the moment you see them and say, ah, because of how they're dressed, this is them. Because we miss out on people who could become our best friends. Amen? Amen? Don't write people off based on age. One of the things I find amazing in scripture is how God would challenge age when, when age was a stereotype. I want to close off by just sharing with you some types of stereotypes. Number one, age. Why don't you want people to know your age? Often it's because of the label that comes with it. I was chatting to my wife some time back and I was like, how come I can't talk about your age to people? I mean, it's just a number, age is just a number, <laughs> right? And I was trying to unpack why do a lot of females not like their age being known, even though there are many ways of finding out, right? And she said to me, I think it's because of the label that comes with it, that people think when you're such and such an age, you can't do this, you can't do that, etc. We have to break these stereotypes. Of course you can. Amen? And I find it interesting how in scripture you see in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. Why? He says, because I am a youth. So in Jeremiah's mind, there was a stereotype to do with age, that if you're this age, you can't speak. Says who? And sometimes we impose this onto our children, don't we? Ah, at your age, ah, no, I just wait a few more years. Who said? God challenged it. And God says, says, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. In other words, God is saying, break out of that stereotype. Do not say I'm a youth. And he's saying to some of you today, do not say I'm too old. 
Do not say I'm too female. Do not say I'm too black. Do not say I'm too white. Do not say I'm too Indian. He says, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. Do you know what qualifies me? God has sent me. Simple as that. Ah, Paul, how can you be doing things for government and stuff? How do you feel when you do it? Do you feel like sometimes I'll apply for a tender or, um, you know, to do coaching for a company or whatever it is. Then I'm told like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, they'll look at citizenship, especially when you're doing things for some of these um, entities that are linked to government and so on. Hey, but yeah, you know, but one time they had to do a big motivation because I'm originally from Zimbabwe. They had to do a big motivation and don't want to expose the organization, but they're like, how come we're having someone who's not a local person doing it? Despite the fact that I've lived in this country for years, I've poured myself out for this country. I've adopted it as my nation. Are you hearing me? Okay. Uh, why are we getting a foreigner to do? Why can't we get... It's not about that. It's about who's, best, who's the best person for the job to help this country. Amen? So don't use that as an excuse where you don't try anymore because of the stereotypes. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on just the old people. No, on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Not just your sons. Your young men will see visions. You don't just start seeing visions when you're old. Hey, I'm not one of those super duper prophets who've, who are, who've got pot bellies and gray beards. They're the ones who really get to see all the angels. No, it says here, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The Holy Spirit is for all ages. Let's break stereotypes when it comes to age. Number two, occupation. Let's break stereotypes when it comes to occupation. Women can be warriors like Deborah was. In Judges 5, verse 24 to 27, there's the famous song of Deborah. Most blessed of women be jail. The wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of twenty. Tent dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. The, uh, she struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank, he fell. Now that sounds quite violent for women, right? But that's what happened. And as a woman, you can be a warrior. Amen. You can be a pastor's wife and be doing triathlons and getting gold medals. Amen. Amen. Number three, we need to break stereotypes when it comes to personality. Just because you're a bubbly personality doesn't mean you're also disorganized. Just because you're a quiet person doesn't mean you can't get up and then preach powerful messages or be a good MC at a function. Do you know that a lot of the top MCs in the world today, they're actually introverts? but they know how to push up their extroverted side and be all bubbly and so on and woo the crowd. Then after they sit down, you try and connect with them after, the, after they've presented and you think the person is a snob because they don't want to talk to you. They're just peopled out. Don't limit yourself. Don't limit yourself. 
Gender. Oh, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. And I've spoken quite a bit about that. How will you feel if your son decides he wants to do ballet? Do you have a stereotype that if a boy wants to do ballet, it means he is inclined in a certain way? Those of you who like soccer, do you know that Rio Ferdinand and his brother Anton Ferdinand did ballet when they were growing up? And it actually helped them. Ballet actually helps you in terms of flexibility and all sorts of things. But we've stereotyped a lot of these roles that if you do this, then it's that. I have to go through that process. Like, how will I feel if my kids decide, oh, dad, we want to do ballet? (laughs) So sometimes we do that. Even in terms of social groups and cliques. You know, you have the jock syndrome. You know, you have the jocks. And they're the ones who are all sporty and all of that kind of thing. What if you're all sporty, but you're also brainy and you're clever? It doesn't necessarily mean you're now a nerd. You can be a sporty person who's also clever. At my kid's school, there's a, there's a girl called Shakira Ketcher. And I used to first see her name on all the records for athletics and so on. And then I was surprised because we're now at these functions at school where they do these concerts. And then you see her playing the marimbas there. Then you see her doing the piano there and so on. And it was a good thing for me because I started realizing you can do all these different things. My wife can play cello, guitar, and piano, but at the same time also get 100% in physics in her first year at university, and at the same time be swimming very well. Are you hearing me? God has made us with lots of diversity within us. Don't stereotype yourself. I'm a pastor's wife. This is how I dress. This is how I talk. How are you? Do you want me to counsel you? I love people. And I love just counseling for hours and hours. No. Some pastor's wives are more prophetic and they'll just give you two quick words and your life changes. And someone who counsels you for three hours and there's no difference. Amen? We spoke about nationality earlier on, all right? And I spoke about the Ibus from Nigeria, etc., and the danger of a single story. Do you know there's also disease stereotype, disease stigmas, that if someone has this disease, it means that they were promiscuous. There are many people with HIV AIDS today, and it's because of infidelity. And for some, it's because they've had it all their lives, because their parents had it. And now this girl is maybe 12 years, 13 years, and she's on ARVs, and then she goes and she wants to get ARVs, and people are saying, what have you been doing? What have you been doing? And she's always had it. Are you hearing me? And we need to talk about these things in the church, because you see what happened was, if you study the history of this, before the year 2000, in church circles, HIV AIDS was seen as the disease for sinners, the sinners out there, and there was a lot of shame. And people weren't even getting treatment because of the stigma. And so we have to break that stereotype to actually say, this is something in our world right now, on the African continent right now. Let's talk about it. Let's get the treatment. Let's pray. Let's do what we need to do. But there are many reasons why people end up with HIV AIDS. Are you hearing me this morning? Why is it that when it comes to the flu, someone says, oh, I'm coughing, I'm coughing. There's so many variables. Ah, maybe it's because you were wet outside and you didn't, put a, you didn't take off your wet clothes. Oh, it's because you're with that person and they passed it on to you. But when it comes to certain diseases, it's like, oh, okay. And there's a stigma. We need to break out of that. Amen? Amen. 
There's stereotypes when it comes to style. Oh, she dresses in black, therefore she's goth. There's some people who just like black as a color. Doesn't mean they're evil people. People? There's nothing wrong with liking black as a color. I mean, it's a non-color we know, technically speaking, you know, black and white, they're non-colors. Some people just like black, and that's okay. Black is beautiful, okay? Sometimes even when it comes to sport, our rugby guys are all boozers. Soccer is for black people. And we see it, you see these young white kids playing so well at junior school. Then you see this white skinny kid now is at senior school, and it's now like, okay, I have to play rugby now because soccer is for those people. Yeah, my parents told me soccer is for it's their sport. This is our sport. Yet the guy could have been playing for, well, I think they need reinforcements actually. The guy could have been playing for Bafana Bafana. Amen? There was that striker. He plays for one of those teams, one of the local teams and so on. And my wife was watching, well, she wasn't following it, but you know, when something's on the screen, she's like, hey, look at that white guy playing. Look at that white guy, my love, playing. It was a novelty for her. <laughs> Just because you like soccer, it doesn't mean you have to stay behind with the boozers afterwards. Enjoy the sport. It doesn't have to go with all the other things. Because again, that's the stereotype. There's some interesting examples. You know, you'll have someone who's a Mexican. I remember there was this exercise that was done and people had to put in front of them what, how they had been stereotyped. And the Mexican guy put border jumper. That was a stereotype. There was a lady who was very slim and her stereotype that people had against her was anorexic. You know, there's some people who just have a high metabolism. It doesn't mean that they're not eating properly. I remember someone who we were at university with, and they would eat quite a bit. I'd see how they'd eat, but they'll just remain thin, skinny, and I think they're still like that. They're just some people like that. It doesn't mean that they've got an eating disorder. Amen? And then there's some people who genetically, they just have a larger frame, and doesn't always mean that they're eating unhealthily. For some people, it's just more difficult for them. They're eating the same amount as you are, even less, but then they carry more weight. So don't be quick to judge people. Some people, it's just harder work. For people like me, I can go to the gym for a couple of days, and you guys will be like, yo, hey, hey. Okay, you won't see. My wife will be like, hey, yo, ho, ho. You know? A lot of women feel like, feel like that about men. They, they're like, these guys, they just do two days and look. And for us, it's harder work. It's the same right across the board. So if you see someone who looks overweight, don't be quick to judge. I'll teach you. <laughs> you, see, you, you see someone who's a tall female in this country where there are a lot of short people. And now she walks with a hunch because she's tall. Yet all she needed to do was just travel to Holland, travel to Germany, where there are a lot of people who are taller than her. And she realized, my height is actually beautiful. It's okay. How many of you know that you look better when you walk confidently, not with a hunch? Embrace your height. If you're short, embrace it. There were some men I was chatting to the other day at, at some soccer games we were watching with our kids and so on. And they were, they were relatively short compared to other family members. But the way they were speaking about their height, they were like, eh, yeah, because, you know, like my grandfather was also, I think it skips a generation. Yeah, I missed out on that one, on the height gene. But they were speaking about 
it as if being taller is better. How many of you know that's a stereotype in our society? And I always say to my kids, because they say, who's taller? Who's taller? I say, guys, being too tall isn't always a great thing, especially if you're going to be doing a lot of flights. You know when you sit on a plane next to a tall guy and you see how they struggle? <laughs> Just practically. Needing to always go to the special stores so that you can get the longer, you know, pairs of trousers. When you buy a bed, you buy a bed and your legs are always dangling over. <laughs> we need to break stereotypes. I'm going to stop there. I'm out of time. I'm going to stop and we'll carry on. We'll carry on next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're doing something special in our midst. And I thank you, God, by your spirit that you're convicting us of the stereotypes that we've had about certain groups. I just want us this morning to be honest. And I was, we're going to carry on filming this because those who are not here will benefit from this prayer. But we're going to do a strong prayer of renounce, renunciation. We're going to renounce various stereotypes that we've been bound by. I want you to say this after me, please. Lord Jesus, I choose to follow your example. Deliver me where I've been bound by stereotypes and prejudice. Where I've limited myself because of my age. I renounce that and I embrace your calling. We have limited my occupation because of my ethnicity or my gender. I repent of that. We have limited myself because of my personality. Forgive me. We have limited myself, Lord, because of my gender and my nationality. I renounce that. We have judged people who have certain diseases. I ask for your forgiveness. I embrace your plan and your purpose for my life. In Jesus' name. Father, may you take us to a new dimension as a people, Lord God. May you take us to a level as a people where we embrace diversity, where we overcome the spirit of racism in this nation, Lord. Where we at the forefront, Lord, where they call on us when it comes to land redistribution, they ask for our wisdom that comes from above. When they ask for diversity training, that we are the ones who do it because we have an understanding of your mind and your heart for diversity. Lord, I pray that this church would embrace diversity, Lord. I pray that by your spirit, we'll truly love one another. We would be curious concerning each other and we would suspend judgment. I speak blessing on your people. I speak joy over your people, even as we celebrate our eighth anniversary as a church. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.